Hi, everybody. My name is Larsine. I'm a very, very grateful member of Al-Anon. And I want to thank Ann very much for the invitation to come and, and the Al-Anon Committee and the AA Committee. Um, we've had an absolutely wonderful time. I love Canada. I think it's just beautiful here. And, um, and I especially like gazing at the North Shore across there. It's uh, just absolutely spectacular and awe-inspiring. And, and then I want to take sh- thank Sharon, who met us at the airport. She's been an absolutely wonderful hostess. I would like to take her home with us because she's got a way of watching my husband when I'm not. So it's... <laughs> like the double team coverage thing works for me really well and uh, I want to wish you all happy Easter Um, Sunday morning is not my usual gig at these things you know I'm the Al-Anon speaker that means Saturday 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock usually during the golf tournament and uh, (laughs) it's just the way it goes sometimes you know sometimes it's a little bit difficult being the Al-Anon speaker at an AA conference it's kind of like being the corpse at an Irish wake Uh, No one expects you to say much, but they can't have the party without you, you know, so uh, (laughs) anyway, it's a a real privilege to get to be here. Happy 40th, you know, anniversary. That's remarkable. I mean, and I know that, uh, you know, this conference sits on the shoulders, you know, of people that obviously have a great love for this fellowship, you know, that, that this legacy keeps getting passed on and passed on, especially to the new people that are walking in. And um, it's a real pleasure to get to be a part of your anniversary. Thank you for having me. All your speakers have been fabulous. I've really enjoyed them very much. Um, You know, they say a good roundup is like a good orgy. When it's all over, you can't remember who it was that made you feel good. So... uh, And and I think, you know, to me, that's really what the program is all about, you know. Um, (laughs) You come home from a meeting and you feel good, you know, and you can't really say who it was that made you feel that way. But, again, that's the fellowship and the love, you know, and that legacy stuff that that is here in these rooms and and obviously, you know, is is alive and well here at at your roundup. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like for me today. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad's a master sergeant in the Army. That made me, like, have automatic rank when I was born. It just is, it's just who I am. It's what I do. My husband jokes that I came out of the womb carrying a clipboard, wearing an armband. Uh, he's not too far off the mark. That's just that's who I am. It's how I was raised. And, um, and you know, when I came to Al-Anon, I thought Al-Anon was all about, oh, you've got to change everything about you, you know. And, and what I've really learned about Al-Anon is Al-Anon wants you to embrace who you are, you know, to your own self be true. And, uh, and somewhere in the family disease of alcoholism, I got all lost in all of that. But what I do know is I am who I am, and I don't have to change who I am. It's when it's, you know, how I like to do things and who I am, and I try and force that behavior on people that aren't, you know, wired the same way that I am. That's what I've learned in this program. It's live and let live. I get to embrace who I am. I also get to embrace who you are. And, um, but anyway, I grew up in this, this house. My dad's a master sergeant in the Army. Uh, my dad's an alcoholic. I don't know that. Um, Uh, As a kid, how do you know that? You know, my dad drank every day. My dad got drunk every day. To me, that is absolutely normal behavior. That's just what I grew up in. We lived with other military families and other military housing. Uh, Lots of dads were drunk. Lots of moms walked around with broken arms and black eyes. That's just the way it went. This is in the 50s and 60s. Nobody ever said or did anything about it. To me, that was just perfectly normal behavior. Uh, When I was really new in Al-Anon, and even still today, I went to lots of open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new in the fellowship, I cannot recommend that you go to as many open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous as you can. It says in our Al-Anon literature that 
that we should do all, we should um, learn all we can about the disease of alcoholism. And I know no better place to learn that than in open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I um, remember being at this one of these first AA speaker meetings, and the AA speaker that evening, he talked exclusively about alcoholism, the family disease. And he described alcoholism in the home as having a rhinoceros in your living room, but everybody pretends it's a coffee table. <laughs> and, uh, and if I have to describe in a nutshell the house that I grew up in, that's pretty much it. Because in, in my house, um, you know, my dad's the master sergeant, and, uh, and he's a pretty terrifying person. And, uh, and he's a mean drunk. There's, he's just a mean drunk. And he was, he was a mean guy when he wasn't drunk, but he was even meaner when he was drunk. And, um, but I used to wonder why someone would go to all the trouble to marry somebody and have kids just to make them feel like a piece of crap. But, you know, again, the family disease of alcoholism. But anyway, he, uh, you know, my mom would get where, you know, so we never spoke in our house. You know, if you grow up in an alcoholic home, one of the first things that goes out the window is any kind of verbal communication whatsoever. And uh, at least that was the case in our house. And so my mom would tell her my dad was ready to have one of his alcoholic explosions. But, of course, she could never say to us, kids, okay, nobody do anything. Your dad's going to blow because then my dad would hear her and my dad would blow. So, uh, so when we're sitting at the dinner table, my mom would speak to us facially. And if you grow up in an alcoholic home, you know, when you're sitting at the table and your mom's like... I mean, you know, see, people know what that means, you know. I mean, just right away, it's just, okay, look down, nobody talk, nobody speak. Try even not to breathe if you can, you know. But if you have an alcoholic that's going to explode, nothing is going to stop that from happening. There'd be some minor infraction or violation, you know. Somebody's pee would roll off their plate or, you know, a knife would scrape a plate. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. And my dad would go ballistic. Dinner would go flying, dishes would be broken, everybody gets a beating, everybody's off to bed, 5 o'clock, the kids got to go to bed, my mom, the dog, it's just the way it goes down in our house. You know, and then the next morning you get up because you have to go to school that morning and you get up the nerve to creep down the hallway and go into the kitchen and there's my dad at the breakfast table having his breakfast beer and, um, and it's, you know, nobody says, gee whiz, what was that about dad last night? Gee whiz, dad, how come you had to break everything? How come you had to hit everybody? You know, nobody says a thing because you just hope today will be different. And the rhinoceros goes back to being a coffee table again. You know, and it's just pretty much that way day after day after day. And that's just the house that I grew up in. And, um, um, you know, and, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a crazy home. It's just a crazy home. I have to tell you, my dad, uh, my dad died from the disease of alcoholism. He died when he was 55 years old. He died the death that they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Tonal Insanity and Death. Um, I can't even tell you the last words my father said to me. They were so vile and so vulgar, I wouldn't even begin to repeat them from this podium. But what I know today is that those were the final words that the family disease of alcoholism said to me, you know, because my dad was so engulfed, you know, in this, in this disease. Um, and, uh, and he died a really horrible death. And, uh, and when he died, you know, my mom had since divorced him, and so all the responsibility of his care had fallen to me as the oldest uh, child. And, um, and I remember the doctors coming out to me, my sisters are sitting there and um, telling us, you know, that my dad has died. You know, I'd like to tell you it was this big sad family thing. Not at all. My sisters and I were like, ding dong, the witch is dead, da da da. You know, and I, again, I don't, I'm not saying this because I'm proud of it, because this is where the family disease of alcoholism takes your family. You know, and, and and in reality, what we all really felt was that like this reign of terror was finally over. You know, this this big bad guy that was always going to kill us and blow us up and do all this stuff and you know, he was just gone, and now, you know, we could finally have this, this peaceful life. And, uh, and, and it's really important for me to share this part of my story.
story with you because especially if there's any new people in Al-Anon here and you're thinking about killing the alcoholic. Um, you know, if that really worked, we would just have Al-Anon meetings in the prison system and, uh, and we would be happy, right? I mean, if that, if that is what would really fix it. But what I got to learn from that experience was because, you know, when my dad died at 55, I had just started coming to Al-Anon. My dad died in October of uh, 1981 and I had started in Al-Anon in June of 1981. So June, July, August, September, October, four months, I wasn't even close to the loving and kind portion of this program by any stretch of the imagination. And, um, but, uh, in, and what, I, what I got to find from that is, is that, you know, even after my dad was gone and I thought that this, you know, all this was over, you know, what happened was the alcoholic died. The family disease of alcoholism was alive and living very, very well in me. Don't need an alcoholic for that. I, I you know, I'd already picked up on all of that, and I, and I didn't have that realization with just four months of Al-Anon. And I had a lot of resentments towards my dad. Um, my dad had a lot of issues with having girl children. He didn't want girl children. He made it very clear to us that we were not wanted people. And, uh, and again, a lot of misinformation is what I know that I learned from, from this person who was so heavily affected by the disease of alcoholism. But, uh, but because he always, just the things that happened, it didn't seem to matter, you know, um, even though he was gone, I would think about these things and it would make me really angry and really irritable and really discontent. And, um, and I don't know how you are, but when I'm just in a hissy pissy mood, I just love to take that home and share it with my family and the people that I love the most. It's just another gift that I got. And, and, um, and that is not what I wanted to have happening. So I did a lot of work in this program right out of the gate about my dad. I did all the writing. I did all the step work. I worked with my sponsor. I did everything she told me to do. And it didn't seem to matter. Whenever I would think of some of those particular episodes that happened, I would get all angry and hurt again and all the things that come with that. And then I remember one time talking with her, and she said, Larsine, you know, you've done everything I've asked you to do about your dad you know, as far as the writing and the step work and stuff. She goes, but you know, Al-Anon isn't about the problem. We all know the problem. Al-Anon is about a solution, and we need to find a solution for you. So I'm going to give you an assignment, and you're not going to like it. And she always told me I wasn't going to like it, because I never did, because I think assignments are, like, just so childish. I mean, they're just an assignment's going to fix this one, huh? You know, but, um, but one thing I learned right out of the gate when I first got to Al-Anon, and don't ask me why, I'm just going to say it was God's grace, you know, is, is that I heard right out of the gate about willingness. You have to have some willingness because how can anything change if you don't have any willingness to do anything different? And for whatever reason, that did renaissance. You know, I, I picked up something on that. So I've always been willing. Not much, but I've always had some willingness. And uh, so I was always willing to do whatever she asked me to do, you know, whether I, I did it right or whatever, but I did have the willingness. And, and um so I went home, and I don't know how long it took, a week or two weeks, and I remembered that my dad taught me how to drive. It was a very insignificant thing. But again, the family disease of alcoholism ever, doesn't ever want you to see anything good that's going on in your life anyway. That's what the whole family disease of alcoholism is about, is just staying in the muck and the, the darkness, you know, and the, and the, and the hurt. And uh, so anyway, but, you know, it, it, like I say, it took a couple of weeks, and it, he taught me how to drive. I didn't think it was much, and I didn't think she would be pleased with it. But if you have a sponsor like I have a sponsor, you know, now I, and I'm not, you know, my sponsors are tough in many, many ways, but they are supportive as well. As tough as they are, they are equally supportive, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and I don't care what I do in this program, you know, my sponsor is always thrilled. 
just thrilled that I made the attempt. And uh, so, you know, when I have any kind of answer for her, you'd think I'd come up with a cure for cancer. I mean, she was thrilled when I said, yeah, I thought of something good my dad did. She was, like, beside herself. You know, what, you know, and what I know about, you know, and if you don't have a sponsor, you know, I cannot recommend enough, you know, how wonderful it is to have a sponsor. They are like your own personal rooting section. You know, they want you to do good because it makes them look good, okay? So, I mean, it's a win-win all the way around, all right? You know, there's... You know, no sponsor wants you to look bad, trust me. And um, so anyway, so then when I said, okay, you know, my dad taught me how to drive, I thought, well, like I say, she isn't going to like that at all. Oh, that was wonderful. Fabulous, fabulous. She was just thrilled. Because this is another thing I learned early on about sponsors, too. When you get an assignment, they tell you the first part. Then there's always a part B, okay? So just in, there's always this part B. So, and, then, and now I got part two of my assignment. Now, part two of my assignment is whenever I thought about those things that my dad had done and said to me, you know, that I was to replace all that negative stuff with this positive thing that he taught me how to drive. And, um, you know, it wasn't too long after that that I came up with a second thing my dad had done that was good for me and a third thing that my dad had done that was good for me. And, uh, um, and again, like I say, the family disease of alcoholism never wanted me to see those things. And I'm here to tell you the circumstances of my life haven't changed because my sponsor gave me some weenie assignment and I had this like horrific childhood with a dad that was physically and verbally abusive. And that, you know, and now I got this assignment and now I did it and now everything's just okie dokie. You know, what happened to me is my sponsor gave me a very, very precious, precious gift that day. She gave me the gift of forgiveness. And never underestimate the power of it. You know, it says in our Al-Anon literature that forgiveness is no favor. We do it for nobody but ourselves. You know, and when I was able to forgive my dad and move on with my life, you know, then I wasn't living in that pain and anger and that merry-go-round, you know, wasn't going on in my house. Because as my sponsor liked to explain it to me, you know, you're not going to be a kid again. You know, those things that happened, you know, you're not going to get those opportunities back. But what you keep doing is you keep giving up the life that you're living right now for something that you cannot change. You know, and there's a serenity prayer about that, that I have to accept the things I cannot change and get on with my life. And she says, and I don't think your dad would want you to be living in all of that pain anymore. He died, you know, he died with all of his children hating him. How much do you want to punish somebody? You know, so I'm able to let that go, and I'm able to accept the fact that my dad didn't want to die with his children hating him, didn't want to die doing the things that he had done, but he was a full-blown alcoholic in the untreated disease of alcoholism. He didn't get the opportunity that's been afforded to me, and I am so, so very, very grateful for that. Uh, after my dad died, you know, my dad was a World War II veteran, a Korean War veteran, um, uh, it decorated, lots of medals, and... Um, and when he died, they, he was cremated, and then the military brought his ashes, his medals, his uniform, the flag, everything to me at my house. And I happened to be alone that day. My sisters weren't there. My husband wasn't there. And so they bring me all my dad's stuff, and they left. And here I've got my dad's ashes, and, you know, I was not really knowing what to do. So I took my dad's ashes, and I took them down to the garage, and I put them on a shelf. And I said, and you sit here, and you think about what you did. <laughs> Because you got to take care of yourself, too. You know, I mean, you do. And he sat there for a very, very long time. A very, very long time. <laughs> now, 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 go share at work how you put your dad's ashes in the garage, and they look at you like, holy mackerel, what the heck? <laughs> they don't think it's funny at work at all. So uh, don't, don't tell that story there. Um, <laughs> 
But anyway, uh, so anyway, I grew up in this nutsamo house. It's absolutely crazy, and it's insane. My dad's behavior is insane. Um, he's crazy when he's drunk. He's mean when he's drunk. He's always going to blow up the neighbors and shoot, the, you know, whatever and stuff, you know. And subsequently, you know, I mean, and we always lived in Europe, and we always moved every two years, whether we wanted to or not, because you're in the military, and that's what you do. And we lived on the East Coast, and and just as I was becoming a teenager, my dad got out of the army. We moved to California. And, uh, and up to now, you know, I'm a rule and regulation girl. I love rules and regulations. I love instructions. Again, that's who I am. That's how I was raised. I really do like it. And um, we, we moved to California, and this is in the 60s, and there's not a lot of rules and regulations in California. I don't know if you heard about California in the 60s, but that was bizarro. And so anyway, so now, you know, we're getting older and we're starting to date. My dad has a lot of rules and regulations about dating in our house. We have to bring these little weenie guys home to meet my dad. My dad is over six foot tall. He has one eyebrow. He can raise like six inches off of his forehead. He looks like Satan himself all the time. You know, and, he's, and he drills these little weenie guys we, you know, we bring home. You know, the master sergeant drill. And he stands over them. He puts them in a chair. He stands over them. Where are you going? What time are you going to be back? And then he tells them what part of their anatomy he will remove if we are not returned in the virginal condition of which we left the house in the first place. So it's very, very hard to get a second date in my house. Almost impossible. It just doesn't happen. And uh, everybody takes you home early, shakes your hand, thank you, but nobody's worth this. You know, they're done. And uh, and that's pretty much the way I remember it. But then my sister told me, you know, that dad did that, but and he is intimidating, but the fact that he always had a hand grenade or a firearm didn't help matters any either. But again, you know, from my, my dad always had a hand grenade or a firearm. He was always going to kill you. He was always going to blow up the mailman or blow up somebody, you know, because that's the insanity of the drinking that goes on all the time. But when you grow up in that, you know, and this is why I have no qualms with me, the non-drinker, how I become sick too. Because this becomes, because when every good sense tells me there's something wrong with this behavior, it's still where I live and I got to justify and make it be okay. You know, when I say being around active alcoholism and living with it day in and day out, it's like having a bowl of crap in front of you. Nobody will eat a bowl of crap. But you'll eat it a teaspoon at a time if it'll make people be quiet, if it'll bring some kind of calmness to the deal. And then the next thing you know, you've eaten a bowl of crap, and then you wonder why you're as bitter and angry. And you're not even the person that's drinking, but this is how the family disease of alcoholism has affected you. You know, and that's truly been my experience. You know, I've been hardwired to think in this way. You know, that, so when I see things that are bizarre or weird, I'm not near as freaked out about it. The news doesn't freak me out, you know, because I grew up in this alcoholic home. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on. But what I know, too, from sponsorship and coming to these rooms is that I got a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation. And, uh, and, and unlearning that is not always the easiest thing. As all the speakers have said, some very difficult sometimes. Very, very difficult. But there is a path, and there is truth. You know, and the truth will set you free, and I really absolutely positively do believe that. So anyway, um, uh, I end up, you know, I'm 17 years old, and, um, you know, and, and my head is like, you know, growing up in this home, you know, my reaction to it, and my sisters had different reactions to it, but my reaction to it was, okay, a student, good girl, don't rock the boat, don't piss off the Sarge, do exactly what you are told, follow the rules and regulations right down the line, you know, have a plan of action for everything that occurs. And again, this is how I this is how I've been raised, this is how I'm hardwired to think, you know. And I don't ask anything because that gets you in a lot of trouble too. Because the Sarge expects you to know where you are, what you're doing, what your assignment is, and you better pull it off. 
You know, so I've learned early on not to ask people. I just figure things out for myself. I call it information from nowhere. It's floating up here in the universe. I got to think up something. I will think up something. It will land here. I come back for me, and I will act upon it. You know, and that's just what I do. And I also have a Rolodex in my head. I have an index card for every conceivable thing that can happen on the face of the planet. You know, and it's just like, and if it doesn't happen, I will make up an index card on the spot. You do one, you do two, you do three, and that's who I am. I got to check things off like that. And so um, anyway, so, uh, you know, and I've got an index card about how my life is going to be. And, um, and I'm dating these little weenie guys but not having too much fun about it. And then when I was 17, I met my husband. And I should have known there was something wrong with him because my dad liked him right away. And that, like, <laughs> never happened. Never, ever happened. And... Um, and we went out on this date. We were with this other couple. And, uh, and then we're going to go back to his house. And, 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 and my husband, you know, I was 17. He's like 24. So he's several years older than me. He'd been married once before, had a kid. Um, and we were going back to his house. He was living with his mom and dad, which might have been clue number two to me that there was something wrong with them. But that went right over my head. And then he stopped at a liquor store and asked me what I would like to drink. You know, well, I'm 17 years old, and there's rules and regulations about drinking in the state of California. And I proceeded to tell him the rules and regulations of the state of California, and that I was 17 and an underage minor, buddy. And, uh, and I know he heard what he still hears today when he doesn't want to hear what I'm saying. He heard blah, 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 blah. Because he went in and got a gallon of Red Mountain wine, if nothing else, to show me what he could consume in sheer volume alone in one evening. And... Uh, so we go back to his house, and this is like a Sunday afternoon, and, uh, and I don't drink, they're drinking, and, but now they're going to play a game. And it's, uh, it's a legitimate board game. It was called Pass Out. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but I mean, it is a legitimate manufactured game with rules and regulations, because I read them. And uh, now, I don't drink, but I have, again, I have a lot of rules about how life goes. And, uh, but now we're going to play this game, and it's a drinking game. Now, I have another rule that's more important than not drinking, and that's the rule that I must win every game I play. What's the point if you're not going to do that? You know, again, how I was raised. You know, you come up on top, or you, you know, you're going to pay a price for that. And so... Um, so anyway, so I drank a little bit of this wine, not very much. I won the game. That's what it was all about. And then, um, and now he's, you know, that's the end of the, you know, the date or whatever, and he's getting ready to take me home. Of course, he's had a considerable amount to drink. Now, let me tell you, I've got an index card in my head about what my life is going to be like and what's going to happen to me because I'm growing up in this house. My parents hate each other. There is no affection in my home. Um, there's just nothing but tension and fear all the time. And believe you me, I know what my life is going to be like when I get the heck out of this hellhole. And it's not going to have any of this stuff going on. And I'm not going to be married to anybody that hits us or makes us feel bad about who we are. And um, I'm not going to be married to anybody that's drinking. That's for darn sure. Because obviously now I can kind of tell that that's definitely a problem that's going on. Yet I go out with Butch and, you know, and this is our very first date. And obviously this guy's a drinker. You know, but what I got to see right out of the gate, and again, information from nowhere lands here because I watch my husband drink. And I'll tell you, when my husband drinks, it's the complete opposite of when my father drinks. Because when my husband drinks, he just wants to hug you and kiss you and make you feel good about who you are, where my dad wants to hit you and smack you around and make you feel bad about who you are. So right away, you know, because I like this guy and I want to go out with this guy, I'm going to change things up. And yeah, though drinking's, you know, on my list of not, you know, he can't not, you know, the guy I'm supposed to go out with doesn't drink. This is different. I can work with this. 
you know, I, I can I can fix this thing right over here, and um, you know, and you know, and what you need to know also was up until that point, I'm just dating little weenie, pencil pushing, you know, geeky kids, straight A students just like me. You know, Butch is a hippie guy, uh, you know, tattoos, long hair, you know, Levi's, no underwear. Another clue, they're an alcoholic, just in case you're wondering. I know. And you know it's true. You know it's true. So that's all I have to say on that whole subject. But I guess two pairs of pants is just too much for most of them. I don't know. But um, but I was literally, I was fascinated, just fascinated with the guy. And um, and it was really hard for me to date Butch, uh, basically because he couldn't remember my name. But uh, you can't let a little thing like that keep you from your alcoholic, now can you? That's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? And. Uh, and I know my name is different, and uh, it's it's Larcine, and uh, and my dad, like I say, not happy with girl children. That's a whole another hour talk. But um, he, uh, but but because I was first born, you know, my dad was hugely proud of his Scottish heritage. I mean, that was a big big deal for him. And uh, because I was first born, he bestowed this name Larcine upon me, which is a Scottish name. It's the name of a town in Scotland. You know, and being a girl, that was like the only thing he could, you know, give me, you know, this little significant thing, you know. So I was always, you know, really pretty jazzed about that. And again, after I was in Al-Anon for a while, um, I went to the, you know, I, this is way before computers and Google and all this stuff. And we have places called libraries. I don't know if you guys have them or have ever been to one, but this is a place where you go and they have books and you look stuff up with your fingers and your eyeballs. And uh, so um, anyway, I went to the library to look up Larsine Scotland and I could not find it. So I went to the reference librarian and asked her to look into it for me. And she told me to come back in a week and I did. And, and she had researched Larsine Scotland and there, she had not been able to find anything like it. And I was, again, you know, because now I'm in Al-Anon a little while, I've forgiven my dad, you know, and stuff. But now, you know, it turns out my dad's digging it to me one more time from, you know, the great beyond. And uh, so I'm getting a little bit pissy about it. And uh, not that people, you know, I don't know, how, I don't know how people always knew when I was pissy, but for some reason they pick up on it real easy at the meetings. And uh, so, uh, so a friend of ours who uh, is a big golfer guy in AA, and he was going to Scotland, which I guess is the golf mecca of the universe, and he was going for two weeks. And what he said to me, you know, Scotland's a very old country. Maybe there's not Larsine Scotland now, but maybe there was Larsine Scotland a long, long time ago. Let me find it out before you, you know, have a hissy fit. So uh, he went off and he came back, you know, two or three weeks later, whatever. Larsine, I'm sorry, there is no Larsine Scotland, you know. So now I'm really ticked about it. I'm going to change my friggin' name, you know. I'm just done with all of this. And uh, then I'm with my husband at his AA speaker meeting on Saturday night, and this friend walks up to me and he says, Larsine, you are not going to believe this, but I found out that Larsine is a Scottish word. I am like, you've got to be kidding. What does it mean? He goes, it means that father was drunk when daughter was born, so daughter got a weird name. So. Now, I am pretty sure that that is not the truth. I am almost positive of it. I haven't researched that at all. But what he went on to say to me, he goes, you know, Larsine, I was alcoholic like your dad was alcoholic. I was mean, you know, and all those things just like your dad was. He goes, but I'm going to tell you what I think happened. He says, I think your dad was drunk when he looked up your name. He goes, but I still believe your dad believed that it was the name of a town in Scotland. And uh, even though that may not be what it is, that is what he meant the gift to be. And just because it's not coming the rap way rap that you think it should be, don't take any, you know, doesn't take anything away from that gift. 
And see, this is why, you know, coming to the meetings, sharing with you guys what's going on with me, because what it always continues to do over and over and over again, again, the circumstances of my life aren't changed. My name doesn't mean crapola. It does not. But you guys just give me a different way to look at it. You can look at it on the negative side and be miserable with it, or you can look at it with this attitude and get a shot at a good life. You decide what you want to do. You want to be miserable or you want the shot at a good life? Because your circumstances are what they are. It's what you do with those circumstances. You know, it's what, it's what we do with those circumstances, you know, that gives me the shot at a good life. And now I'm really, really proud of my name. And if I ever win the lotto, I'm going to Scotland, I'm buying some little village, and I'm naming it Larcine right out of the friggin' gate. It will happen. But anyway, Butch and I, uh, we started dating, and... Uh, and we, you know, and we dated for a couple of years. A lot of drinking, a lot of drug use behind all of that. Big violations of the rules and regulations, you know, that I have anything to do with. But you know, most of that stuff I just really kind of overlooked. I I, I just had a ball with him. We just we had a lot a lot of fun, and uh, you know, and it's important for me to remember that too, because uh, because boy, I sure forgot about it. Boy, as, as life got really bad behind the drinking, I forgot that I ever enjoyed it. That that you know that we did have good times, you know, and uh, and it wasn't always this horrific life. But um, uh, what ended up happening is after we dated for a couple of years, I ended up getting pregnant. And it uh, may not be a big deal for you, huge, huge deal for me. And uh, because now I've broken the big rule and the big regulation, and uh, this was the punishment. You know, as our lives got really bad behind the family disease of alcoholism, this was the punishment, you know, that I was going to get. And, uh, you know, and I'm here to tell you, you know, that if, uh, you know, if, if the God that you have is a punishing God, you know, then you might as well get on up and walk on out the back door. You know, the God that I have learned to find in these rooms, you know, is, is a loving, forgiving, understanding, compassionate God. And I don't think he really gives a hooly hooey about, you know, what your past has done, you know, or what you've done in that past as a result of alcoholism. I think he cares about what you're doing right now with what you got right now. You know, and, that, and that's why I love in our literature where it says, you know, there is no unhappiness too great to be lessened. There is not, you know, and uh, there is a God here that, you know, it's not just been my experience, but that of many people that I have seen in these rooms, you know, that, uh, that the, the God that's here is just a loving, caring God that wants you to be happy, joyous, and free and gives you the free choice to do that. It's up to you. It's totally up to you and your attitude about your life and where you're going to go from this point on. But anyway, I, uh, you know, I was sure God was, was, was putting the big whack-a-mole on me. And, uh, you know, and, and what I know today is that was just a big excuse for me not to take responsibility for the choices that I was making in my life because it's way easier to blame God for crap you know, than, than it is to stand up and take responsibility for the choices that I was making. And um, anyway, it was, it was a big to-do for me. And, um, uh, and in the first year I was in Al-Anon, we have in Southern California our Al-Anon Family Groups Convention. We do this deal where we get the two adjoining hotel rooms and we cram as many Al-Anons as in these two adjoining hotel rooms as we can and one night we're having the meeting after the meeting and, and like I say I'm new in the program and we have seven women up in the room and what I heard people sharing was their deepest darkest secret. Now I don't know that that's what they were sharing but that's what I heard so when it came around my turn to share I told those women how I had had to get married because I was pregnant and uh, it turns out seven women in the room, six of them had to get married because they were pregnant. <laughs> And we decided the seventh cause was the sickest because she married an alcoholic and did not have to. I'm sorry. That's really bad. That's really, that's pretty sick. And, uh, you know, and again, what I got to learn 
you know, from that whole experience is you are as sick as your secrets. Because I'll tell you where I really was in that space when I was sharing with those women. Because where the family disease of alcoholism took me is that, you know, every time this little boy's birthday would roll around, I started blaming this little kid. You know, because if I hadn't had this kid, then I wouldn't be stuck in this marriage having this crappy life. And again, I don't tell you this story because I'm proud of it. I tell you this story because this is where the family disease of alcoholism took me, that I would blame a little child for the circumstances of my life because that's what the family disease of alcoholism is all about, placing blame on somebody, making it be somebody's fault, and living in that disaster over and over and over again. Um, anyway, we ended up getting uh, married a month after our child was born. So if you ask me if I was pregnant when I got married, no, I was not. And, you know, it's all how it sounds to me. And, uh, and I want you to know up until that point, I'd never much discussed with Butch his drinking or his drug use. But the day after we got married, the day after we got married, I sat him in the kitchen chair and I told him the rules and regulations of the marriage. I said, you know, we're going to get a babysitter once a month. You can party once a month, but that's it. We're going to work. We're saving money. I got a plan. Do you understand? He sat in the chair and to me did this, which was affirmative. And, uh, you know, and what I know today, he was so freaking loaded. His head was just doing this thing. And he heard the blah, 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 blah part because, uh, because day three of our marriage, he does not come home all night long. This is a huge violation of the rules and regulations I have sat down. And I am here to tell you, you know, uh, you know, I watched my mom for years. She never said nothing. So I knew the silent treatment didn't work. I am proud to stand before you and tell you my husband begged for the silent treatment. I mean, he begged for it. He never got it one time. I was like one of those little dogs when you walk in, just, you know, and curse. Good Lord. I don't even know where I learned this language from. And again, information from nowhere lands here becomes back for me because I'm sure if I say the right mothers and effers in the right order, like he's going to have some spiritual awakening, right? Get his act together. I don't know what the deal was. And, uh, yeah, and, and he jokes that I talk as fast as I do because I only had so much time from when he came home to when he passed out to tell him everything it was that I was going to tell him. I thought he was going to hear it. It's absolute insane asylum. And, um, and just the craziness that just goes along with that. Now, I want you to know positively the driving force behind my husband and I getting married was the fact that we had this child. There is no doubt about that. But I want you to know that we got married in a church, that my husband was sober that day that he loved me and I loved him and we were as sincere as any two people are that are getting married on the day they're getting married. That we wanted to love and cherish each other, that we wanted to be there for each other, that all the things that you do in marriage vows we wanted to honor. But what I didn't know and what my husband wasn't, didn't know was it wasn't just Butch and Larsine that got married that day, it was also the family disease of alcoholism. And I'm here to tell you the family disease of alcoholism doesn't love or cherish anything or anybody. It means to tear your family apart through the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic. It's totally irrelevant to the family disease of alcoholism. And so, you know, so we've just pretty much took off in that insane craziness and uh, what ended up, you know, um, you know, and then my husband just started getting progressively worse. Um, you know, one night, you know, he came home at like 3 o'clock in the morning and woke me up demanding to have his dinner. He'd never done anything like that. It scared me. His behavior was kind of turning into my dad's. And I got up and I went into the kitchen, but then I woke up and I remembered who he was dealing with. And, um, 
I've made this uh, Mexican casserole that called for one jalapeno pepper, but I had a whole can full of them in the refrigerator, so I tossed every single one of them in there and chopped them all up, you know. And, you know, and then he ate it, his mouth's on flame and fire, and then he's doing what I want him to do. He's in the bathroom puking his brains out. I'm in the bedroom giggling in my pillow, because I don't know how you feel, but when my alcoholic throws up, oh, my God, I just get a warm feeling all over. It's just last me for days. This is where the family disease of alcoholism, you know, takes us in a very, very short amount of time. And, uh, and just the craziness and the insanity and the craziness and the insanity, and it's getting worse and worse. And, and I remember one time his, his friends, whom I affectionately return to as scum of the earth people, call me on the phone. And these are the drug dealer people. You know, and Butch is with me this week, and you can talk to him yourself. You know, when he describes his alcoholism, you know, his, word, his, his single word for it when he describes himself as pig. That is his, that's his word. And, uh, and so, uh, so the drug dealers have called me, and he is over at their house, and he is so drunk and so loaded and so belligerent that if I do not come get him, they, the drug dealers, are going to call the police. This is, this is the condition I live with. So um, I put on my cape, off I go to get him, and... Um, and, and there he is in the drug dealer's bushes. They've kicked him out of the house. The drug dealers are looking through the Venetian blinds to see if I've arrived. And uh, I get him. I get him in the car, drive home, go put our infant son in his crib, come down to get my husband out of the car. He's, he's tried to get out of the car by himself, and he's fallen in the street, cracked his head on the curb, blood gushing out everywhere. I'd like to tell you I'm concerned about him. I am not. Just want him off the street so nobody can see him. So he's 180 pounds of wet washcloth. I cannot pick him up. So I get him by the ankles heave him up over the curb, taking him down the sidewalk, little trickle of blood following right behind. Why we call these people normies, I have not a clue, but this guy's driving down the street, I'm dragging a guy bleeding by the head. The normie guy stops his car and says, are you having a problem? I'm like, yes, my husband's fallen and he can't get up. And... Uh, so the guy helps me get him up, and now the words are flying between Butch and I, you know, and stuff like that. And, and again, I've never had an injured husband with a, with a head injury. I don't have an index card for that. I instantly make one up on the spot. Injury, head injury, must be in bed. Our bedroom is up a flight of stairs in our, uh, in our condo, so it's just like, you know, don't ask me where this information comes from. It goes on the card. i got to do it. So anyway, so now we're going up the stairs. The words are flying between Butch and I. Mr. Good Samaritan no longer wishes to participate. So we get to the top of the stairs, and that guy's out of the house like a flash. Now Butch is on the bed, huge puddle of blood from his head injury thing here. Now I'm very concerned. Not that he's going to die. I want to be a widow desperately at this point. But I do not want my DNA or fingerprints anywhere on any uh, anything when it happens. So uh, so I'm calling 911. I'm hysterical. They didn't know what to do. Hook and ladder truck, fire department, you know. They had police. They got a hold of my mother, paramedics. Everybody's out there. They clean Butch all up. He's got a little weenie cut, you know. <laughs> but the police come into me, you know, and I'm with the baby. Oh, you know, the big drama queen over here. And, uh, and they're going, Mrs. Gantner, your husband says he injured himself because you pushed him down a flight of stairs. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I didn't do that, but if you prop him up, I'll be happy to push him down in front of the Redondo Beach police, you know, the usual crud, and uh, they assured me they didn't need to do that. And like I said, they clean him up, he's a little weenie cut, but he's got to go by ambulance because he's too drunk to stand. Now, Butch is like the friendliest guy on the block, still is to this day. I mean, everybody knows him. I speak to no one. And so, but all the neighbors know him. And of course, it's Friday. It's like 7 o'clock in the evening, 6 o'clock. The, the hook and ladder truck, you know, the police are there. So all the neighbors are out front. Here comes Butch out on the gurney. Hiya, Frank. Hiya, Joe. You know, his usual self. It was Butch. 
watch what happened. Larsine pushed me down the floor of the stairs. And everybody believes him because he's the easygoing drunk and Larsine's a screaming banshee sober person in this insane craziness. And uh, just absolute nutsiness. You know, and somewhere in all that insanity, I did go to an Al-Anon meeting. Uh, a friend of mine had uh, gotten... Um, uh, I was a friend I'd gone to school with. Her mom had gotten sober in uh, Al-Anon and her, or in Alcoholics Anonymous, and her dad was going to Al-Anon. And I asked him to take me to a meeting, and he did. A great meeting, great literature on the table, but not the piece that I want, how to get him to stop drinking and do what you want him to do. I still think that would make a great piece of literature myself, but they're not going for it. So, um, you know, but when I sat in that front row, and they said, Larsine, do you want your life to be different? God, did I want my life to be different. Larsine, what are you willing to do about it? Nothing, because it's not my fault. You fix him and I'll be okay. Real big on it's not my fault. Real big on you fix him and I'll be okay. And again, information from nowhere, and I act upon that. You know, that's really what I'm thinking. It's all on him, it's all on him, it's all on him. And, uh, you know, we just went back into this insane living situation. And, and uh, I remember we were going to have, uh, my husband is one of nine children. And so they were having this huge family reunion, big, big deal. So I made him raise his right hand, promised to me he would be sober that day so we could go and look good. And, of course, he raised his right hand and he promised me he would be sober that day. And I know that he meant it with every fiber of his being. I know every time he promised me that he would never drink again or do these things again, that he meant it with every fiber of his being. You know, but what I don't know and what he didn't know is once he takes the first drink, you know, there is no promise. There is no family. There is no wife. There is no love. There is no kids. There's nothing. There's just the disease of alcoholism. You know, and so we're functioning on, a, on, on information we know nothing about. And, uh, and, of course, the day came, and guess who's so drunk and so loaded he can't even stand up? And I am pissed. I am just really, really angry. I'm here to tell you my husband's a blackout drinker, a disappearing drunk, coming. I mean, I can't tell you in the short amount of time, you know, all the things that happen. But, uh, but I'm here to tell you that no matter how drunk he's ever been or how blacked out he's ever been, he's never, ever raised a hand to hit me. That's just not the person that he is. And, um, but that day, I was so angry, I was poking him in the chest, and I was egging him to hit me. Because let's just take it to the next level. Because I don't know what I'm doing either, and I'm just as crazy and loony too. And I keep pushing, and I keep pushing hard, even though I'm pushing in the wrong direction. And as I'm pushing on him, egging him to hit me, I became very conscious. And then our little boys are now, I've got two little boys, and they're five and three years old, and they're standing on either side of me. And they're yanking on my pant legs, and they're begging me, Mommy, Mommy, please stop yelling at Daddy. And I would like to tell you that I had a moment of clarity then, but I did not. What I started doing was I started screaming at those little kids, how dare they tell me to stop yelling at their dad when he's the reason our life is the piece of crap that it is. And by the time I got done screaming at these little boys, I look up at my drunken husband who's walking out the front door, and I, the sober mother, say to the drunken husband, where do you think you're going? And the drunken husband turns to the sober mom and says, I'm leaving because we're upsetting the kids. And I don't tell you the story because I'm proud of it. I tell you the story because this is where the family disease of alcoholism took me. And I think I'm the good guy. I'm the one holding it all together. And again, the family disease of alcoholism doesn't care who it uses to tear the family apart, the drinker or the non-drinker. And um, anyway, my husband ended up getting arrested a little sometime after that for drunk driving. No big deal. My husband's been arrested lots of times for drunk driving. But this is the one that got him sober. I don't know why. It's his miracle. I really do believe that. Because um, he got you know, sober back in the day when they just let you go the next morning. There was no big hoolie-haw about it or anything. I just had to go pick him up. And, um, and I went and picked him up. And, and I know that God was working in my husband's life, and not necessarily mine, but in my husband's. I didn't know my husband had a sort of spiritual awakening that evening. 
But uh, I went and picked him up, and I didn't say anything. And believe you me, it takes a power greater than anything on the face of this planet. I mean, he was shocked, and but I was doubly shocked. You know, I mean, I just didn't know. But what I had done is the day before, I'd heard about this hospital program that they had just opened, and it was for the treatment of alcoholism. And uh, I talked to him about my husband, and they said I could have my husband committed if he was drunk, but after he sobered up, if he didn't want to stay, they didn't want him because they were only interested in people that were interested in getting sober. So after I brought him home, you know, from that, you know, getting arrested, and a couple days later he came downstairs and he said, I have a problem, because there's, you know how quick they are. They pick up on this stuff really easy. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, and all I said was, here's a hospital. You know, and again, I stepped out of the way. I really believe with all my heart that God pushed me out of the way so that my husband could find sobriety. Because I didn't listen to him making the call. I didn't ask him if he made the call. He made the call. He made the arrangements to go in there. He uh, uh, went into... Uh, um, uh, first, they had to put him in the psychiatric unit because of all the drugs he'd been using. He'd been on Valium for like 20 years and all this stuff. And they had to detox him, you know, and everything. He'd been through the DTs before when he had tried to quit, so he had to go through all this detox stuff. And, and so he's at the psychiatric ward, and, I, and so he's all checked in. They took away his razor, all the sharp stuff. I get to the big double doors there. The guard is there letting me out, and I hear Butch call me, Larsine, come back, come back. And I was sure it was because he changed his mind. You know, but I walked back to him and said he reached into his pocket and he handed me the Valium that he brought in case of emergency. And he'd never parted with the Valium in his life, so I knew something was really different. And I went home and I took it because I was just a flame <laughs> basket. And I think I slept for like 23 hours on one ton milligram Valium, but uh, in my own defense, I was very, very tired. And, uh, you know, and if it was up to me, he would still be there that day because, you know, I like the whole system. You take them there, they feed them, they watch them for you, you know, they, you know, and, and that's what I would have settled for. That would have been enough because I was just so done. I was just so done. And, um, but anyway, he, you know, he did like a whatever, a week or two on that side, and then they introduced him to the, uh, the treatment side of that program where he got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am very proud to report to you, uh, my husband's been sober since uh, July the 21st, uh, 1979. And, um, and I'm very, very grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous because it really saved the life of a good man. I am truly, truly grateful. And I always get teary-eyed at this point, and I'm sorry for that because one thing about Al-Anon, it wusses you out a little bit. I don't, I've never liked that part about the program. But... <laughs> but um, but I always get teary-eyed, not because my husband lived, and I am grateful, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, it wasn't just my husband that got saved as a result of that. Because I want you to think if my wish had come true and my husband had died and I got to be a widow, I want you to think about that really angry woman raising those two little kids, and I want you to think what kind of a family you think we would be today. Because it's the family disease of alcoholism. You don't need the alcoholic. Once you've been affected by the family disease of alcoholism, you're just as a you know, strong carrier as anybody else. And um, so anyway, my husband got sober. Now he's a frickin' flaming hero. And because uh, you know how they are when they get sober. Woo, like Superman or something. I don't know. It's just unbelievable. And he's always a frickin' spiritual giant. And, you know, and, uh, and, and when he got sober, you know, they didn't do any at that hospital. There was no family, nothing. All about the alcoholic, you know, and stuff. They told me I should go to A. Al-Anon meeting. I went back to my A. Al-Anon meeting. That meeting I'd been to a year or so ago. I walked into that meeting. We saved the last 10 minutes of our meetings for newcomers' questions. I couldn't wait. I could not wait. So when the, I'm, the new, I'm back, I raised my hand. Okay, Larsine, I, you know, I want you guys to know, I was here a year ago, and I asked you how to get my husband sober, and you did not tell me. And I am not going to tell you how I got him sober now. <laughs> and do you know what they said to me? 
I know somebody does. Keep coming back. You're darn right that's what they said. Because I am here to tell you, when people tell you to keep coming back, that is because you have said the most stupidest, ridiculous crap. Your only hope, your only hope is that you keep coming back so you can hear something of a little more sense. And, uh, and so what ended up, I didn't come back. You know, I was done, he's sober, I win, game over, nanny, nanny, nanny. And that was just pretty much how I looked at it, you know. And I went with my husband the first six months he went to AA to make sure he heard the stuff he was supposed to hear at AA meetings. But after six months, I'm like, God, how, there's only 12 steps, how stupid are you, you know, what is the deal here? But he made it clear to me that AA was the most important thing. And so he just kept on doing his AA thing. And, and, and you know, and, and I enjoyed his sobriety early on. It was fabulous. I mean, he was, you know, doing it, bringing the program home, doing the deal. And it was fun for me for a little while. You know, but again, I was around recovery. I had nothing to do with it. I was just around it. And, um, and, uh, and he was getting better and I was getting worse. And I, and I was just perplexed by that because I was just positive that once he got sober, that would fix me. I was positive once he started working and bringing home a regular paycheck, being a good husband, being a good father, that all those things would fix me. And I was becoming more and more and more and more miserable. And then what ended up happening is I remember I was, you know, I'm an on-task person, boy, because, you know, again, how I'm affected by the disease of alcoholism. I have to have all these rules, all this, everything has to be exactly this way because in my sick mind, this is how I'm corralling it and controlling it and keeping it, you know, as together as I possibly can. Because God forbid I don't watch you or keep an eye on you, you know, or let you off the hook just a little bit because that means, boy, you're going to get out there and then it's all going to be a mess again. You know, that's my fear. That's what I know is my fear today. But, uh, but I'm very task-oriented, so I'm in there and I'm doing laundry and I'm cleaning everything up. And, you know, and I don't care what day it is. If we want to have fun, we do our chores first by God. Check, 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 you know. And, uh, and so I'm in there doing laundry. And my boys, of course, are much bigger now. And they're in the living room with their dad. And they're laughing and cutting up. And I remember going through the living room. And I set one foot in the living room. And it's dead silence. Because that's what I do. I suck the joy right out of the room, boy. That's exactly what happens to me now. And as I'm passing through, I heard God's voice in my head as clear as a bell. And it said to me, you're your dad. Totally flipped me out. Totally flipped me out. And then the next thing I heard from this loving God in my head was, and this is not who I meant for you to be. This is not who you are supposed to be. You know, so I started going to Al-Anon for all the right reasons. I didn't come to get an alcoholic sober. He already was. I didn't come to keep him sober. I came because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I got a sponsor right away, you know, because I'm a rule follower. When I went to the meeting, you go to meetings, you read the literature, you know, I mean, we work the steps, you get a sponsor. It's pretty clear cut. You know, I'm on top of it because I have every intention of being president of Al-Anon. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Maybe you say there's no president, but I know there is somewhere. You just haven't told me about it yet. So, uh, <laughs> And so, you know, and my sponsor, you know, I got, and I got a sponsor the complete opposite of me, you know, because I didn't want anybody thinking like me. That's not good, you know. I mean, I have every intention of working my way around everything. You know, I have no intention of being a good person here. I'm just going to do what I have to do, you know. And again, don't ask me where all this comes from. This is all the sickness that I've been affected by the family disease of alcoholism. So I got a sponsor that was older than my mother, uh, had never lived with sobriety. Uh, she was divorced from her alcoholic, didn't have any children. She had a thick Dutch accent. She could hardly understand a word, a word the woman said. And I remember the first time I used her as a sponsor, Butch had a dead battery. And, um, he, uh, and he asked me to jump him, and I did. And after I, after I jumped his battery, he ran out of gas. This made him angry. He started yelling, so I yelled right back at him because I don't take crap from nobody. And uh, he stormed off to work. I went upstairs, called my sponsor, and reported his behavior. And uh, <laughs> told her what he did. 
And when I was done, she says, when Butch gets home, you owe him an amends. It was unkind and unnecessary. And I'm like, whoa, 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 Jeannie doesn't know how we do things in America. You know? And uh, she missed the crucial who started it, which I think is a very important fact. And uh, so I didn't want to tell her she was stupid, so I started telling her the story again, obviously not listening the first time through. And I barely got started the second time when she stopped. The th- she said, don't tell me what you just told me. I heard you the first time. And another thing, don't ever call me and tell me what, you know, Butch said. I am not Butch's sponsor. I am Larsine's sponsor. And for what she said, it was unkind and unnecessary. And you owe your husband an amends. I'll see you at the meeting tonight. Goodbye. Click. End of conversation. We are done. I learned valuable lessons. Never call your sponsor first thing in the morning. You got all day long to think about what you told him. Bad, bad. Never call your sponsor when you're going to see her that night at a meeting because she's going to want to know if you follow direction. I'm a rule person. I have to do what she told me. So and I don't put stuff off either. So as soon as Butch walked in the door that evening, 5 or 6 o'clock, I marched right up to him and I said, I am sorry I let your shitty attitude affect me the way that it did. <laughs> and I will try and do better in the future. Now, that may not sound like the best amends you've ever heard, but I am here to tell you that day it was the best amends I could ever have made because that was the first time I was even this much willing to do something different. And that's just kind of how the whole path has been for me. That's Because I never told him I was sorry for nothing. It was always his fault. And that's just how it is here. You know, we come in and we want, you know, big miracles to happen and big things to change up. I'm telling you, this program has been this much for me one day at a time. Day after day after day. It is a journey. It is an experience to go through. And you have to go through this much at a time to appreciate it and let it take a hold of your life. And that's the way that it was explained to me. You know, you're not going to get 15 years or 20 years or 30 years until you come here for 15 years or 20 years or 30 years. Heck, if we could smack you with the serenity wand, we'd do it right out of the gate. Believe you me, it's easier on you, easier on us, you know. But, you know, and that's why I always get upset when people are going, oh, you got to be careful around the newcomers. Don't upset the newcomers. They're already upset. They don't come here unless they're upset, you know. Let's get upset together, you know, because that's how you find, you know, the way. You know, there is no easier, softer way. There's just not. There's just the way you got to go. You know, and the, but the good news is there's so many people here who want, who want to go with you on that journey, who will show you the path to take through the tears. You know, and so many people have shared, you know, about the truth. It's painful initially. I liken it to be the family disease of alcoholism. You're in the dark. You're just in the dark with that stuff. And when you walk into these rooms, the lights go on. And your initial reaction is it hurts. It's painful to see. But there's beauty. There's so much beauty to be seen here, too. You just have to give yourself some time to get to the adjustment part of it. And that's why you have a sponsor. And that's why you have a fellowship and a home group. And that's why you keep on going, even when your head's telling you why it's, you, don't, you don't need to do it anymore. You know, and the two examples I'm going to give you real quick of that, because I want you to know how sick I am. I'm going to always be this way. I'm hardwired to think negatively. I've grown up in the family disease of alcoholism. When I was 15 years in the program, I've always been very active, always participated, sponsored, been sponsored, do everything I'm supposed to do. And we have our South Bay Roundup, which is much like your North Shore Roundup is to us. I mean, it's our, it's our Roundup, it's our group, it's our people that we've been with for a very, very long time. And we were at this Roundup, and speakers are great, workshops are great, wonderful time. And, um, and so we come home on Sunday, and we stay at the hotel, even though it's not that far from our house, because we really want to be a part of the whole deal. And I have a very, you know, again, I'm a very disciplined person. It's who I am. I'm hardwired that way. I have an exercise program. Now, I haven't done my exercises for three days, which means I have to do all three days worth in one day. <laughs> works for me. It doesn't matter if it works for you. It works for me. So and it's just the way my head does it. You know, information from nowhere. i got to do it this way. So, um, so, I, uh, so as soon as I get home into my exercise things and... Uh, 
And now our youngest son is living at home. He's 19 years old, lots of problems with drugs and alcohol, and very afraid for this kid. And I go into the garage and uh, where my treadmill is, and next to my treadmill is my son's weight bench. And on this weight bench is a driver's license. It's a woman's driver's license. Information on a driver's license. I've told you guys I love information. And uh, this woman lives in Glendora, California. Her birth date's on there. She's 32 years old. I decide in 10 seconds or less, this woman has been in my house, had sex with my 19-year-old son, has two kids, wants to marry him and call me mom. I am all over that. I run into the house. Butch is laying on the couch, his favorite form of exercise. And I show him the driver's license and nothing because the man has no imagination whatsoever. Nothing. So... I tell him what I think happened over the weekend, you know, and, you know, his eyes roll back in his head, as they often do when I tell him what I think happened. And uh, he told me, call Carol. Carol's my sponsor now, you crazy woman, you know, and stuff. So so I go call Carol, and Carol agrees with Butch. I'm not so wacko. And Carol rarely gives me direction, but that day she told me to shut up. <laughs> shut up. She goes, you know what? I know you're scared for this kid, because what's the worst that can happen? They can die. And that is the worst that can happen. I mean, that is absolutely, it's terrifying, terrifying. But at the same token, she says, you know what? It takes just as much energy to send good thoughts his way as it does negative ones. So why don't you get out of the fear and just send that kid positive hopes instead of making up more crap to heap on a plate that's already got enough crap on it. And I end my conversation, as I often do with my sponsor after I've talked to her, never mind, because I've been coming. I know the drill here, you know, but still, left to my own devices. You know, and as it turns out, two days later, I don't see my son because of his work school schedule, my work schedule, and he walks into the kitchen with the driver's license, and he says, Mom, what do you do when you find a driver's license? So I don't tell him what I do when I find a driver's license. Because it's a really bad example, bad, bad, you know. Somebody going to meetings, working the steps, being of service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so people go, Larsine, why do you keep going to Allen on 10 seconds alone? Keeps me coming back day after day after day. My washing machine and dryer is in the garage. Every time I walk in there, I go, okay, God, help me, help me, okay, because we're going in the garage. You know, I mean, that's a spooky place for me. Again, information. And, and when do those thoughts go away? When do those negative thoughts go away? I don't know that they ever go away, but it's just the deal that goes on. Eight years ago, I found out I was going to be a grandma. Stoked beyond mortal belief. I've never been a grandma. I'm just so excited about this. This is my big do-over, too, you know, being the grandma thing. And so, uh, so, and you know how they have the popsicle sticks? They know immediately when they're having a baby now, you know, and all this stuff. So, uh, so, and again, I've never been a grandma. Need a card. Don't have a card for, you know, having a baby and all this stuff. So first thing on the card, I must be there when the baby's born. Don't ask me why. I just think it up. It lands here. It goes on the card. It's how I'm going to do it. And, um, and so uh, the baby's nine months away, and the baby's due in the middle of May, and it turns out I got like four commitments prior to this baby being born. And so my husband says to me, nine months, these commitments are nine months away. You might want to see about getting out of them if you think you're going to be here when the baby's going to be born. I'm going, those are Al-Anon commitments. I'm not going to give those up. I've already said I would be there. And then he's going, well, then you might not be here when the baby's born. Don't you just love it now when the alcoholic is the voice of reason in your house? This is, this is a terrifying thought. But I told him I had it worked out. There was a plan, you know, and he knows better than to mess with me when I'm working on a plan. And uh, he just does his AA thing. And um, so uh, now I didn't tell my sponsor my plan. And if you have a plan, don't tell your sponsor because sponsors are plan busters. They just, well, 
no matter how good it is, they will pick it apart. You know, they will pick it apart. So, and so I didn't tell my home group because they'll rat me out to my sponsor. So that's no good either. You know, so I went right to God with my plan. You know, and I am very, very tight with my God. And um, and so I just, you know, and I know that I, you know, and I've been raised right in this in this program. And I know I'm not supposed to ask God for specific things or make things come out a certain way. And I wasn't asking for any of that. I was just asking God if this one little weenie baby could not just be born on a weekend. You know, it can be born any other, just not on the weekend. You know, God, and then, of course, you know, I give them my credentials. You know how much service I do. You know? <laughs> I didn't say I was well. And um, so, you know, but again, just the back of your mind. So just this little, I'm not really asking for me, but I think it's really important that I be there when the baby's born. I hope you understand where I'm coming from my heart. You know, and then I hear, I, I close my eyes and I see God affirmatively. as far saying, you're going to get this deal. And, and as it turns out, no baby, no baby, no baby. Last commitment I have, you know, and then I'm home for a month or something. And, and, uh, and this is Minnesota, a little bitty town, 30 miles south of the Canadian border. You know, one plane in, one plane out. I call my daughter Friday morning. Nothing going on. Everything's fine. Okay, I'll see you Sunday. So I get there. I'm at this dinner. Cell phone rings. My husband, the baby, has been born. I am so pissed. I cannot even begin to tell you. Here I'm at this dinner. Oh, we're so happy to have you. I'm like that. I hate you. You know. <laughs> 22 years in Al-Anon here. And uh, now I don't say that. Of course, on the outside, it looks like it's all fine. But that's how I feel on the inside. But I have tools. I know what to do. I call my sponsor. I excuse myself from the room. The baby's born. I'm pissed. This sucks. When do you get to be there for your family? I'm quitting Al-Anon. This sucks. I asked God for one little weeny baby. You know, you think you could do that for me? No. And I'll never forget. I'm in so much pain. My sponsor says, I'll have to call you back. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Sorry you're busy. Well, I'm in pain here. Now what I know happened was about a minute later my cell phone rings. Now I'm not sure how it is here in Vancouver, but I'm here to tell you in Southern California when your sponsor sponsor calls you boy, you have crossed the line, man. They're bringing the big guns. Reel you back in. And, uh, and what I had done is I had freaked out my sponsor so much that she had to call her sponsor. And uh, so now it's her sponsor I'm talking to on the phone and I know better than to yell at her. I go the other way. I start crying. Oh, wanted to be there when the baby was born. It's up here. It's a big 22-year-old giant Alan spiritual person here. And uh, and I'll remember her sweet voice just saying, Marcin, did you turn your will and your life over to the care of God today? And again, one thing I got taught right out of the gate, because I don't care where you are, where you are on the face of the planet, what's going on in your life. In 2.5 seconds, I can turn my will and my life over to the care of God. That simply, that easily done every day. And I said, you know I have. She says, then you are exactly where you are supposed to be. And another thing, a beautiful thing happened today, and you became a grandmother, and your grandson is doing fine, and your daughter-in-law is doing fine, you're getting a blow-by-blow description of everything that's going on, and because you made some ridiculous rule about how it had to go down, you're going to take this beautiful event and turn it into a piece of crap. Never mind. One more time, you know, my thinking is always going to get me in trouble. Why is it important for me to be with you guys? Because because I would have made it be a piece of crap. What I remember now was my husband picking me up from the airport on Sunday, taking me directly to the hospital, me scooping up that little baby boy in my arms. You know, and now it's a beautiful memory for me. But left to my own devices, I would have turned it into a piece of crap. This is why I keep coming back. This is why I need you guys so desperately. And uh, and then I got a granddaughter four years ago on a Wednesday. Thank you very much. And uh, 
and we get to babysit all the time. And when she was born, they were over at our house. She was a few weeks old. My grandson was then four years old. He has to go to the bathroom, and, and Papa wasn't home, so I had to take him to the bathroom because he's kind of afraid of our bathroom. So if somebody has to go with him when he goes, but I'm a girl, I'm not allowed to look at him. But I must talk to him with my back to him the whole time while he's going to the bathroom. I don't know where he gets all this crap about how we have to do things in a row like this. Ridiculous, stupid rules he comes up with all the time. But, but that's what gets to happen here. And uh, you know, and, and you know, and what I know, you know, it's you know, it, it's been a long time for us to be here, and uh, and I'm just grateful. You know, my husband has a. And when he was 25 years sober, he got diagnosed with cirrhosis as a result of hepatitis C. And so this last eight years, we've been doing this dance with uh, liver disease and all kinds of stuff. He's been on interferon twice, and, and he's been in the hospital, died almost a couple of times. But as my friend always like, you know, alcoholics, she says, they're always circling the drink, but then they circle right back up again. So, uh, <laughs> but only here, you know, I mean, it's so fearful, but, you know, but here you guys, it's a big part of our life, but it's not the part of our life. You know, because, because what you guys give us every day is the right here, right now. The most important thing going on is right here, right now. And where am I? And I want to be present. And I want to see the joy. And I don't want to live in the fear of what tomorrow will bring, because tomorrow could be another joyful day. You know, I, I, I've given up so much time to fear, so much time to dread. You know, and the most important message I have for you guys is to take the program home. It's so easy to behave well at a conference. It's so easy to behave well at a meeting. But if you're taking the deal home, you are getting the ride of a lifetime, the ride of a lifetime. It blows my mind that I had to come to a room full of strangers to learn how to love my own family. You know, and I am so grateful to you. I have a little wooden candle I keep in my kitchen, and it says a candle loses nothing of its life by lighting another candle. I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for lighting my candle. Thanks for having us.